Hello, Lime Ninjas, and welcome to episode 82 of Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and with us all the way from lovely La Jolla, California, is our certified show producer and the brains behind our business, Aurora. Now, Aurora, before we introduce you a little bit more, has it stopped raining out there yet? It actually were in between El Nino storms right now. Uh, we had a couple good days of rain out here that was sorely needed. Um, and it was sunny today, but it started uh, getting a little bit cloudy overnight. So we'll see. Cool. So who's yeah. our guest today? Our guest today is Amy Teal, and I'm really excited about this interview. She shares her story of how Lyme disease changed her life and how she's dealt with it, moving from Los Angeles back to Philadelphia, learning how to take care of herself, be her own advocate. It's a very powerful story. I think you guys are going to like it. But before we get into today's episode... We want to let you know about our free Lime Ninja Brainwave Breathing Cheat Sheet. Yes, you all know the symptoms of brain fog and Lyme brain. The problems accessing words and names, forgetting things, becoming easily confused, and even overwhelmed. Now, some experts believe one of the reasons behind brain fog and Lyme brain is the dissynchronization between the left and right hemispheres of the brain. It's as if the brain is having problems talking to itself. In addition, I also notice in all my Lyme patients that their blood oxygen levels are always a little bit low. So the brain isn't getting the oxygen it needs to operate in full capacity. So this led me to develop brainwave breathing. See, brainwave breathing is a simple and powerful technique that can help clear brain fog. It's easy, anybody can do it anywhere, and it works. One Lime Ninja, Jillowiz B, says, Brainwave breathing helps me to mentally relax. It has a meditative quality, too, and definitely helps me focus. There really is no negative aspect to this technique. I even did it while driving my car. It may have looked a little odd, but who cares? <laughs> okay, I love that quote. If you want to get your free brainwave breathing cheat sheet and video training to teach you how to do that, just pop one over to LimeNinjaRadio.com for the details. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com. Okie doke, Roar. Tell us a little bit more about today's Lime Ninja, Amy Teal. Amy Teal was working in Los Angeles in TV and film production and transitioning into acting when in 2008 she started falling ill monthly. These monthly illnesses became progressively worse until she was bedridden once a month. She became suddenly and dramatically sick, more so than before, the day after her 40th birthday party. Her health continued to worsen until she couldn't take care of herself anymore and had to move back to Philadelphia with her parents. Six years later, she has finally started to regain her health. She has become a passionate advocate for Lyme patients, created a support group, and is now a writer as well. She has a blog where you can find her, uh, limeadvocate.blogspot.com, and she can also find her at her PA Lyme group. Thank you, Aurora. Here's our interview with Lime Ninja, Amy Teal. Okay, let's begin. So tell me 
your Lyme story. What happened to you? Yeah, my story starts in 2008. I was living in Los Angeles. Um, I was formerly a television and film production person, sort of working behind the camera, and then I transitioned over to acting and made the move out there um, in 2004. And I was, you know, pretty much, I felt like I was making the dream happen. I was doing everything that I needed to be doing to, to move that forward. And then in around fall of 2008, I started getting a flu-like um, illness every month, about once a month. Hmm. And at the time, I was 39, so I thought I was having some hormonal changes, uh, particularly because it was happening so, cyclic- so cyclically, and right. I was keeping track of it on a calendar. So was it tied to your cycle? Well, so I had been a migraine sufferer since about college, tied to my hormones. And what happened was the migraines were getting progressively worse. Um, They were essentially putting me into bed for three days. And, you know, this was real. yeah, this was a real issue because I was very busy. I was working full time. I was auditioning. I I was an athlete. So I didn't really have time to be sick. Who has time to be sick, right? Right. and so I just kept chalking it up to the hormones, and and I thought, all right, let's, you know, let me just see. I went to my general um, practitioner out there, and he thought maybe it was just a recurring flu, um, and he gave me, like, ibuprofen or something. But what happened was they these flares just got progressively worse, and in the spring of 2009, I started developing 104-degree fevers. Uh, I would vomit for days and not be able to stop. Um, I started getting um, severe muscle inflammation, so severe that I couldn't get up out of bed. Um, And, you know, it's, it's embarrassing to say, but again, I just, I'd never been sick like that. And I just kept thinking, well, either I've caught something or it's like the hormones are all kind of playing off each other. Right. And um, went to the went to the general practitioner again, and he again said, "I just think it's the flu. Here's anti-nausea meds, whatever." Mm-hmm. So then I had my 40th birthday party, and I had a fabulous party, and I drank, and I you know stayed out late. And I can tell you that my life has never been the same oh, since no. that party. See, um, it's not the party; was, it's 40. <laughs> It was forty. I, I'm actually having a long, a long-term midlife crisis that hasn't ended. <laughs> that completely changed my life. But um, that party is sort of like the, yeah. you know, that's what I pinpoint that that's the last time I had a life. It felt like I had a good time at the party, and I was so sick the day after the party mm-hmm. that I knew that it was not staying up late or drinking. I my body was saying to me something's really wrong. So within two weeks of that party, I ended up in the ER. Um, I I had a night on my bathroom floor in Los Angeles and um, I truly thought I was going to die. Um, I I had never felt such intense physical pain in my body. And also, now looking back, I understand what was happening. My brain was inflamed and I contemplated suicide that night. I I did, truly. Um, I just thought nothing is going to make this go away except killing myself. Um, and so I, a friend took me to the ER and, um, 
I spent a long and scary night there and they were just like, we don't know what's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to go see a rheumatologist. Did they give you any palliative care, any first aid? What? You know, they, again, always in retrospect, they questioned me for a good hour and and later we realized it was regarding like drug seeking. We thought maybe they were looking for um, because I just kept saying to them, I'm in so much pain. I, you know, I need something to take the pain away. Like I'm going to blow my brains out. And so they, um, not to be graphic, but you know, that's what it feels like. And, um, they finally gave me morphine and Mm. it was horrible. I, I felt better once they did it and the pain finally receded and it had been like at least three days worth of that kind of pain. Mm. And then I spent that entire night itching as the morphine left my body. Um, really? And then, yeah. And then about a week later, well, so I went to a rheumatologist. They told me I had lupus and put me on lupus meds. And within a few days, I developed severe Bell's palsy. Yeah. Um, the left they side of my face became paralyzed. They put you on right? Uh, no, they actually gave me um, Plaquenil. Oh, okay. And, yeah, they gave me Plaquenil. They gave me some muscle paint. I, I think it was something called Selexin. Um, they gave me Lunesta for sleep. They, they gave me, like, four things. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I had the Bell's palsy for two weeks. Left side of the face was paralyzed. I was in the middle of rehearsing a play and oh, had to great. bail out, which was devastating. Yeah. yeah. I was really excited about the play, and I just, I mean, you know, I couldn't, I yeah. mean, I couldn't, I was stuttering. I was, um, I couldn't recall, recall words. I wasn't sleeping at all. So, um, went to a neurologist and he said, yeah, it's false palsy. And, and my roommate who was with me at the time had been doing the reading and she said, well, you know, could this be Lyme disease? Flat out, he said, no. Right. Right. No. Yeah. And, uh, again, I was completely uneducated, so I didn't know what that meant. Um, and so essentially after that, false palsy, my health just continued to go down into a downward spiral to the point where I had to pack up and move home with my parents in Philadelphia. Um, I couldn't take care of myself. I at, at age 40, couldn't really right? function at age 40. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty pretty tough. Um, so I did that, and I put my stuff in storage, and I thought, well, I'll be back in five months, and I'll be right back into the swing of things, you yep. know? Yep. Ha-ha. And uh, thus began the next year and a half of, I saw about 17 doctors. Wow. Um. And, um, I continued to spiral physically and I was intensely sick. Um, yeah. I did get some care. I got, I saw, I saw a Lyme literate doctor who gave me, um, four months of doxycycline mm-hmm. and I started to get much better on that. Um, what happened there was my low, my white blood cell count went very low mm-hmm. and he sort of was concerned about that. So he took me off of it. And essentially said to me, I'm not really sure what to do here. You need to see a rheumatologist. And at that point, I was pretty devastated by that because I'd already seen like three. And I thought, well, now I'm going in circles. So um, it was about this time that I started to really become invested and involved in my own um, journey. And I started to do a ton of research. I was on 
the computer all day, every day, right. trying to figure out. I mean, yeah. it was like, you know, we, we say we have a degree in Lyme disease. Exactly. I just said, you know what? I, I'm not getting anywhere, and I, I'm so uncomfortable in my body. There's got to be an answer, and I am not buying that I have lupus because I was on lupus meds for about six months, and I just was getting worse. Yeah, yeah. I should add, too, by the way, this whole time I was not sleeping. I was getting no sleep. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I'm I'm doing some research on the midbrain and Lyme, and I'm wondering if that's the. I mean, almost everybody says the same thing about their sleep. The sleep just disappears. Yeah, and that's you can't heal if you don't can't sleep. You can't, and it's like a whole other layer of hell when you are not sleeping to that extent. Yeah. Um, I was so, and and also my adrenals were shot, which I learned out learned later, which was. You know, making that situation worse. But yeah, of course. with with no sleep, I was so sensitive to the world, mm-hmm. and um, I just couldn't function on a daily basis. Yeah. I cried all the time. Um, you know, it just that that sleep that like you can't explain that kind of sleep deprivation to someone who's never had it to mm-hmm. that extent. Um, it's brutal. So it went on for months, right? It was at least a year and a half that uh, I had that I had disrupted non-rectal sleep. It's amazing you don't have permanent brain damage. I mean, serious I brain damage. I know. Yeah, I know. It and and the inflammation that was happening in my brain. Yeah, I mean, course. the depression that that brought on was was so intense. And I and I should note that I was not a depressed person. I was pretty. I was a pretty positive person. Um, before Lyme, a real like kind of go-getter and it completely knocked it out of me. You know, it's just, you're just not prepared for what this illness can do. And were you, you. Um, yeah, were you suicidal during this whole thing? Yes. On a daily basis. Yeah. I think it's yeah. important and to I, talk about that. I agree a thousand percent. Um, it's, I will say that I knew enough to know that I needed to see a therapist. Mm-hmm. because, and that's something I talk about with advocacy, is that, because um, there was some shame around that for me. Um, yeah, of course. Seek, seeking that kind of help, and I knew enough that it was dangerous because I was having such intense suicidal ideation that I needed to talk to someone about it, and that, you know, I didn't I didn't want to feel ashamed about that because it's it's important. <laughs> it's part of the disease. One of the things I say to people to help them kind of wrap their minds around it is if you have a severe enough concussion, you will get, and those concurrent uh, brain inflammation, you will get suicidal thoughts. They're not your thoughts. They're mm-hmm. the brain being mm-hmm. injured. And I think yep. if we can dis- have, help people disassociate from those thoughts a little bit, you can then begin to work through the guilt and the shame. It's like, okay, this isn't all me. It's not that I'm a weak person. Right. It's like my brain's just at a, going nuts. That's such an important point to make. It really is. Um, my older sister, I she she's been a real. My whole family's been amazing, but my sister was very supportive, and she would always say to me, "It's not you. It's the line." Yeah. And that was so valuable to be told that because. You're in it when you're in it and you're that sick. You cannot be rational sometimes, and it's so helpful to have someone outside of you remind you that you're still in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. So when did you figure out that this was Lyme? 
Did you ever get an official diagnosis? Yeah. So from the start, my mom, God bless mom, right? She was yep. like, you have Lyme disease. She's like, I miss you Lyme disease. And I'm like, why are you saying that? And she said, well, because, you know, we're here on the East Coast. And she said, you know, I know colleagues and friends who've had it. We have a, a, we have a good family friend who had had it, you know, like 20 years ago. And she said, I just think that you have Lyme, especially because of the Bell's palsy. So, um, you know, with all the research I did, and, and I had a friend who, who said to me, why don't you just write down all your symptoms and compare, you know, with like Lyme and lupus and see kind of what makes sense. And so when we did that, it was pointing to Lyme. And I just kept all the reading I was doing, I just kept saying, you know what, my intuition is telling me this is what it is. So um, because of a support group leader, uh, a woman named Julia Wagner, who actually is the president of PA Lyme, um, of which I'm a board member, she brought me into the advocacy um, efforts. And she said to me, you know, you need to go see this doctor. I, I, I know what's happening for you. Mm-hmm. And so um, I went and finally saw him, a Lyme literate doctor here in Pennsylvania, and I, I honestly feel he saved my life. Oh, he did. Um, yeah. He did. And he, he tested me at Igenics, and I full-on had Babesia, and um, he felt that my Babesiosis was actually the prevalent infection. Um, I mean, I was having night sweats. I was having night terrors, hallucinations, <laughs> like full-on, right? And... uh He's like, we have to treat the Babesia first. So um, he did do a Lyme test, and I believe at that time it was indeterminate. So his feeling was, let's you know, let's attack the Babesia, and then after that, let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, also, my adrenals—I had like no adrenal function left. My hormones were shot. Yeah. I was being pushed into like early menopause, um, full-on, you know, food sensitivities, chemical sensitivities, yeah. you know, the whole. Kitten caboodle. Um, of course. So, yeah, we treated the Babesia for about seven or eight months, and that was its own new layer of nightmare. How so? Um, just because just it, it just kicked up so much, and I had a very intense um, healing, a feral crisis to that. Um, the first three or four months of the Babesia treatment was I felt worse than I'd ever felt. Um, which is tough because you're treating and you're thinking, you know, if you, if you're in the old paradigm of, you know, take the pill, get better, um, that's what you're expecting. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's not what was happening. My body was fighting so hard to, you know, kill the infection. And, and, um, I just, it, it was tough. Yeah. It was really tough. Those were some dark days. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I got through that treatment and then it wasn't until about a year. So the story takes a little, a little, um, detour, which I'd like to share, which is I, 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 so after the BBC treatment, it was about another year and I was kind of in this weird limbo where I was feeling okay, but I was still like only about 60% better. And I said to my doctor, I really still feel like I have Lyme disease. I really want to get tested with the culture test because I really think that this is what's happening. Um, and you have to be tested for that when you're symptomatic. And mm. I was flaring still about every month. Back to the old pattern, huh? Back to the old pattern. So in other words, I was pretty much, instead of being sick every day, which I had been before, now I was 
able to sort of get through the days without being that sick, still really exhausted, but not, right. you know, really sick. And then when the flares would come, I'd be in bed for five days. Okay. So I said, let's please do a culture test. Please take my blood when I'm symptomatic, which she did. They got a call within days and said she's culture positive for Lyme. In the meantime, I had gone to get a mammogram because um, I hadn't had one. And my sister just said, look, with all your stuff, you, you just deal with this. You still get one. <laughs> so I got one. And, uh, yeah, she's like, I, you know, you're 40. You should really deal with this. So I did. And, and, and I thought, well, you know, whatever. This, it's not going to be a big deal. I'm just going to go get a checkup. So I went and got a mammogram. And they found microcalcifications, which meant they wanted to do a lumpectomy. So I did that. Um, with a lot of resistance because I kept telling the doctors, you know, I'm so vulnerable still. I don't even know if I can handle an lumpectomy. Um, and I was right. I was sick for days after, but they found two lumps. One was benign and one was cancer. So I have this whole cancer situation that happened in the middle of all of this. And the crazy, crazy thing about the story is that that was the least of my problems. <laughs> really? Yeah. In fact, I forget that I had a cancer situation. Wow. How's that because for perspective, huh? That's perspective because I was not sick. I didn't know it. And a big part of the story is the way I was treated when I had cancer, which yes. was... With kid gloves. And, yeah. Say more about yeah. the difference between the two. Well, it was like, you know, I didn't have to say to them, hey, everybody, I have breast cancer. Somebody listen. I'm not crazy. I have breast cancer. Can somebody do something about this? It wasn't like that. It was like, you have this little, you know, dot in your breast. It's cancer. Here are all the ways we're going to help you. Um, they handed me a binder with all the information I could ever need. They gave me free alternative uh, therapies to go do. I had about four different doctors. Um, you know, and it really it really crystallized for me. I mean, I already knew it, but it, it validated even more how difficult the Lyme journey is um, because... I really thought Lyme was going to kill me, and I had to fight every step of the way to be not only treated with respect, but to be treated. Mm -hmm. so, so hang on here for one second. What kept you going? I mean, you've got suicidal thoughts. You're depressed. I mean, what what motivated you to keep fighting through this? Do you have any idea? So I've always considered myself more a spiritual person than religious. Um, and I will say that in the middle of this, I kind of let go of all that. I was so angry. You know, I was kind of mad at God and the universe. And I just thought, you know, like, why is this happening to me? But I had a couple moments of such despair that strangely there was sort of a giving over, um, the body was so weak that the spirit was free, if that makes sense, um, where I gave over and I just said, you know, I, I give in, I let go, and I will keep fighting. 
And I find it fascinating when I talk to other patients about that moment because I'm really interested in how we find in ourselves that ability to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, people, people will say to me, like, well, how, you know, why, how are you doing that? And I just say, well, what's the other choice? <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and the thing that I find fascinating about this journey is I was able to hold two conflicting thoughts in my head at all times, which is so strange. But one was, I want to kill myself because I'm so sick. And the other was, I'm going to fight with everything I have in my being to live. Okay. Now I have a a slightly strange question. What was your relationship to each of those thoughts? Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. Um, I think it depended on how much pain I was in. <laughs> that's an honest <laughs> like if answer. Me, if you asked me on a good day, I'd be like, oh, that's suicidal thoughts. That's like so stupid. I, you know, whatever. That's just the line. But when I was in enough pain that I couldn't even open my eyes or breathe, I would think this is, this is me. It, it, I own this. It's taking over. And, and, and honestly, again, not to be too spiritual, but Sometimes it felt like this, like negative influence is like this thing is taking over my body. That it almost feels like a zombie. Like you can't. (laughs) When you're in that much pain, it's hard to separate the 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 conscious thought and the pain. They feel like they're one and the same. And so you identify yourself with the pain, with the suicidal thoughts, and you know it's it's hard to differentiate. But um, again, when I would come out of the pain, I can, I can separate it much easier. And, and then the, the wanting to fight with everything that I have, um, I think that's where the strength comes from when I'm, when I'm in that much pain and I can be conscious and say to myself, I'm in this much pain and I am still not giving up. Um, I should say too, I, I was an athlete and, and I really feel like some of that stays with you. Um, I played field hockey on the cross and I played both for eight years. And um, there's a part of you that understands pain because sometimes you play with it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you play through it. And also in sports, you play and practice hard and sometimes you lose. But you get up the next day and keep going. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there was something in that. There's something in my mentality still where I'm a fighter because of that. Mm-hmm. So, so you had a bit served of, me well. Yes, of, of war, warrior training. A little bit, yeah. I mean, well, it eight years. Eight teach- years is a little bit more than a little. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was seventh grade all the way through college. Yeah, um, those sports. So you know, a lot of a lot of practices and runs and running in the rain. I always say to people, you know. Um, well, and what you talked about the mm-hmm. the experience and the practice of winning and losing. That's a lot of games. You know, and yeah. if, and if you're on a great team, you're winning seventy percent. If you're on an average team, you're winning fifty. And if you're on a bad team, you're losing seventy percent of the time. So you learn right. to you learn to deal with the emotions, right? 
Right. And then if you're a good team, right. you, you lose big games, and it's even more emotionally painful. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's right. It's that mentality of, well, you're losing, but you go to practice the next day anyway. Yeah. Are you familiar so. with Carolyn Dweck and her growth mindset research? No. She's very interesting. She's mostly interested in in education, but she has identified kind of a, two fundamental paradigms that uh, we tend to operate out of. And we can switch back between the, the, the two. It's not a fixed thing. But one is what she identifies as a growth mindset, and the other is the fixed mindset. And the fixed mindset is, well, I was born this way. These are my traits. I inherited this from my mom and my dad. I'm the way I am. So I'm an artist, I'm a musician, I'm not an artist, I'm not a musician, I'm an athlete, I'm not an athlete, and it's fixed. And it that type of mindset produces a whole set of actions and relationship to setbacks and challenges, as opposed to a growth mindset, which is more like, well, if I work hard at this, I'll get better. And that mm-hmm. produces, again, a whole nother set of relationships to challenges and setbacks and and success of other people. So it's just, it's um, an interest of mine right now. That's really interesting. I, I, I definitely um, can see that. I And it's interesting because I talk to a lot of patients and it's interesting to see that in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can sort of see pretty quickly with talking to people um, kind of where they are and how open they're going to be to any advice or implementing any of that. Right. So what you're saying there in terms of and growth versus fixed, it, it seems like that could certainly um, apply. It certainly does to healing as well, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it's all mm-hmm. in my genetics, so it doesn't matter what I eat, drink, smoke, or do because right. I'm going to get it, not get it because that's what's in my family. Right. Mm-hmm. Which um, it doesn't always work that way. <laughs> okay. So we're cruising through. You're battling. At what point do you say to yourself, you know what? Somebody needs to go out there and change the world or at least Pennsylvania. <laughs> right. Um, I, I changed it pretty soon. I mean, as early as 2009, 2010, um, when I was still trying to figure out what was wrong, just because of the, of the experiences I was having with doctors, I started to get really pissed. And I'm like, this is not okay. <laughs> um, and there was no support group in my county and Delaware County here in Pennsylvania I mean, Pennsylvania has been, I think, number one in the country for the past five years. And Delaware County is very high. We have a lot of Lyme happening here. And I, I, there was no support group, and I couldn't believe it. So I said, all right, I'm going to start one. Um, I did an under-our-skin screening and got people to come and, yep. you know, just started an email list, as so many of us have done. Um, and I just, um, you know, started doing monthly meetings, and we, we didn't have speakers at first. It was just a place for people to come and, you know, share. Mm-hmm. And it started to grow from there. Um, and I, you know, I went to a couple conferences. I started networking. I, I did a Facebook page. And it's been a really, it was a really slow growth in the beginning. Um, and then again, Julia Wagner, who started PA Lime, there was a group called Lime Action PA, and they were getting volunteers to help with driving the legislation forward in our state. Um, and so I got pulled into the mix there 
And then that evolved into PA Line Resource Network, which is the group I'm now the social media director for. And so um, it's just evolved. Um, I still run the local support group, and we've grown quite a bit, and now we have speakers every month. You know, and I just did it very grassroots. I did it with um, word of mouth, friends telling friends that, you know, if you have questions, talk to Amy through email. I mean, I, 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 get, I get three emails a day, four emails a day still from either through our website or yeah. through family and friends who are asking me questions. Um, and I do feel like it's like if you build it, they will come. And um, I just, you know, I'm, I'm floored all the time at the fact that my story is still happening. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I don't want to see happening anymore. I really, I mean, this has been seven years for me now, which eight years, which isn't even that long considering, you know, some patients are, I've been dealing it for 20 years, 30 years. Right. Um, but that's, that's what drives my passion and the volunteers I'm, I, I'm on the board with is that, you know, we don't want to see people waste their lives trying to figure this out. We want them to have the answers right away and not waste time on doubt, you know? I have a question for you in terms of your support group. So we yeah. have a very young support group here too. And it's, there's a core of about four or five, six of us right now. And it's the mm-hmm. same sort of thing that, you know, every month we'll get one or two new people and they, some of them have stuck around, but most of them just come for a few meetings, get what they need, some encouragement and some support and that some affirmation. And, you know, then they just uh, feel empowered and I think go back into their lives with a little more fight in them. But right. the discussion we're having is, that how do you begin to influence the physicians in the community who are really, you know, no matter what, they're the front lines. People don't start talking over the fence about what's going on unless there's a problem. And really, that's kind of where we are. It's we're like, okay, we're doing backyard. It's like tool time, Tim. They had the conversation over the back of the fence. It's like that's how we're diagnosing right. people because the doctors right. are just, like you said, no, that can't be Lyme. We don't have Lyme here. Right. Right. Well, that's one of the mission, the mission for PA Line. That's one of our um, sort of the branches of our mission is physician education. So not only are we interested in educating the patients um, and giving them support, but one of our goals is physician um, education. Now, we passed a bill or an act here last year, Act 83, that was part of that legislative drive um, to form a task force. And that is part of um, helping us drive that education from a statewide um, position. So it's not just us sort of working on that. Um, but that is definitely a goal. And thus far, it's literally been individual doctors that we're talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is the ILADS conference that happens. Um, we had that here last year in Philadelphia at yep. Drexel. That was in um, conjunction with PA Lyme. We were volunteers there which was amazing because we had physicians there learning. Um, and so that's a really key thing here to get doctors to that. We encourage patients um, through our support groups and through our Facebook page to talk to their doctors and encourage them to go to the conference. So that's kind of how we're doing that here and driving it here. Um, and again, in the support group, you know, I will encourage people if they are getting 
again, this is why patient education is so important because they're literally taking it to the doctors and saying, here's what's happening. Here's the information. Please learn about this. And do you find, do you get feedback that the doctors at some point listen? We do. Um, I first, I can speak personally, you know, I've, Again, I came back in 2009, so this is six, seven years later. I personally feel that what I'm hearing from patients um, is that there are some doctors who are starting to get the message that this is not going away. And so what does that mean practically? Um, I think some of them are becoming a bit more open-minded about talking to patients about it and the possibility that it could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are more open-minded. I know that there have been a few who have actually made the effort and gone to the conference. It's, I think the frustration for all of us is that it's um, a trickle and it needs to be a tsunami right. of right. doctors who are being educated um, because the need from what I'm seeing from an, a, a support group leadership position on a daily basis coming to me, it, it, we just need doctors to be much more educated and available. Yeah, these chronic infections are a, no doubt an epidemic, and they're an invisible epidemic. And it, you know, it makes, I don't want to minimize AIDS, but it's going to make AIDS look like uh, a hiccup. I think when, well, right. when, I mean, when they finally figure out how much of this is really going on. The fact that we're left to figure this out on our own, I mean, for again, for myself, we're talking Babesia, Lyme. I then had, I then had um, an Epstein-Barr infection and an HHV-6 infection that became um, active again, which is part of what made me so sick. Yep, the fact that I'm having to figure this out on my own, mm-hmm. to me, is absolutely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the and, way it and is. Again, yeah. It's the way it is. Yeah. And again, going back to the advocacy, this is why we're doing what we do mm-hmm. and why I am really passionate about talking to patients and, and really um, helping them to see that they cannot be a passive patient when it comes to these illnesses. That is the most and, beautiful segue. So how, how does one become their own advocate, especially when you're sick, how, how do you right. do that? Cause that's your specialty. It that's is. Um, it is my passion. And you know, it, uh, the first thing I say is, look, I understand more than anyone how hard it is to try to get your brain around difficult scientific medical concepts when you are the sickest you have ever been. However, I am telling you, your life depends on it. And if you are too sick, to get online or do the reading yourself, I recommend we find someone who is supportive, family or friend, who will read to you or talk to you about these concepts. Um, so that you, it, it's to me that educating yourself in the beginning of this is, the, is step number one. That's the most important thing because you cannot defeat an enemy you don't know. And, you know, I'll give an example. Personally, people kept saying to me in the beginning, detox, you have to detox. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, whatever. I (laughs) detox, whatever. You know, Mm -hmm. it really was. I was very, 
blase about it. Of and, course. You know. He talks, me talks, right? Yeah, it's like, okay, whatever. It's, it's like intellectually, I was like, okay, but I didn't process that in my body physically and understand what the detox was doing and how imperative it was that I was doing that for my body. And so that's that's just one example of uh, many different things that I didn't really fully embrace and understand. And, and that's why it's you have to understand. Yeah, so let's talk nuts and bolts here for a second to really drive this home. So it, it's a great example. So what did you have to learn how to do or what, what habits did you pick up or figure out? or What exactly did you do for detox when you finally figured well, it out? I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> so anything <laughs> beyond that was probably going to be good. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I so I started religiously doing um, dry skin brushing and Epsom salt baths, mm-hmm. which were so helpful to me. I cannot, oh, I mean, I would be in a flare and feel so toxic in my body. My spine would be on fire, my neck. You know, that lime feeling. And I would get into an Epsom salt bath, and about 15 minutes in, it would go away. Yeah. And the headache would go away. And I would just, I just feel so much better. Um, I started, I started, so I, I couldn't exercise for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. And I started going for walks. It started very slowly, um, you know, like a block, and then two blocks, and then more. And then I also was drinking really just so simple, but very aware of how hydrated I was. Um, you know, it's such a simple thing to do in the day is just to make sure you're drinking enough water and add lemon to your water. And also I started to just really educate myself about foods and pH versus, you know, alkaline versus acidic. Um, really just anything I could do or read about that process and started doing it. Thanks. Yeah. Because it's one thing to say, you know, oh, I really needed to detox, but then, you know, it stays in the contextual realm. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you have to be committed to your healing. I, I will say that another thing that's helpful in the beginning is to accept that you are sick. Mm. Um, Was that hard for you? Oh, it's so hard. I was in denial. I I will tell you that my stuff is still in storage in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> is that part? Is that part of the place still waiting for you? <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, I'm going back, and I'm yeah, this is not even happening. You know, it was. I, I can't say that I was, you know, so evolved that I was like, done. I'm sick. Let's move on. It was in stages. It was there was a mourning that happened. I mourned yeah. the person that I was before. Mm. At what part I had did to let you go you know, of that? At what part did you do that? When did you get to that point? Yesterday. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's ongoing, right? It's ongoing. It's it, it's letting go in stages. Um, yeah. But you know, I was really pursuing my dream and what I was very excited about. So letting go of that was tough. Huh? Again, it was. I was mourning a loss. Yeah. I was mourning the loss of that part of my life. Um, and so, so accepting I was sick was really kind of really doing that fully. Um, but and did now that help you? Know, I'm sorry to interrupt here. Did that help you kind of put some energy into healing instead of just resisting being sick when you're able to let some of that go? Absolutely. Yeah. Which 
is why I think it's important to give over. And also there, to me, there's a forget. I had to forgive my body for being sick. Ah, interesting. I was so angry with my body for failing me. Mm-hmm. So angry. Um, and so I had to accept that I was sick, give over, forgive. And man, it freed up a lot of energy to... Basically, I, I, I tell people, once you do that, now healing is your job. Yes. Yes. Um, and you can't have guilt about being sick or putting your energy into getting better because, again, your life depends on it. Now, how, did you, how does one advocate for themselves in a medical system that doesn't want to hear it? Right. Well, the way I look at that is in the minutia of how you deal with your doctor or doctors. Um, because I'm through it, I can say this wholeheartedly. If you are dealing with a doctor who doesn't believe you, that is not your doctor. Move on. Mm-hmm. You're move saying on. move on, right? Find a new doctor. Saying move on. Yeah. Do not waste precious time and energy arguing with this doctor to get this person to believe you. Because you know yourself, you know, trust your body, trust your intuition. Um, I, I, you know, I, I wasted a good year and a half, two years. Learn from me. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> you know, this is real. Lyme yeah. is real. This, you know, don't. This can this can disseminate into every organ in your body if you're wasting time. So so if this doctor is giving you a hard time, move on. Find the doctor who knows what he's talking about and can get you better. So that's number one. But even within the doctors who know, there are ways to take care of yourself in those situations. And I'll give a few examples of the minutia of. Um, communicating and dealing with doctors. Um, some of the things that I did that really helped were, um, and some of these might be obvious, but take someone with you if you can, because in the beginning of Lyme, we are often too sick to really absorb what's being said to us. And having a second pair of ears can be really helpful. I also think that another person in the room with you validate to the doctor who you are. Hmm. Because they're only seeing you as a sick person. Um, they don't know the vibrant, full person you were before you came there. Um, and along with that, I advise people to take a picture of themselves or pictures of when they were well and ask the doctor to put it in their file. Really? Yes, and I did that. That's I took pictures amazing. of me skydiving. I took pictures of me skydiving. I took pictures of me with friends. And I said, here, everybody, this is what I looked like before I was sick. No kidding. I love that. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. They don't know you. Right. They only see you as this sort of vulnerable, possibly crying, sick person. And I feel like it makes you human. Like, look, I have something to live for. Help me get there. Right. You know? Um I also took a recording device to some of my appointments. Mm. Some doctors will allow you to do that. Mm-hmm. Some will not. It depends. But um, I did that for all my cancer appointments because I was so overwhelmed that um, 
you know, it was invaluable to go right. back and listen to the, all the information that I needed. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, I also asked for copies of everything. Not everyone, not everyone liked it that I did that, but I said, you know, this is my information, my medical information. I want copies of everything. I want to know what you're doing. Um, and I just kept notebooks so that I had access to everything. Yeah, that's smart. And, and the actual number results, not the just you're okay, you're not okay. Yeah, no, I, I asked for test results. I asked yeah. for scripts. I asked for anything that was on paper, my files, I wanted to know. Um, and also down the line, that's important to have because if you switch doctors or you see a specialist, you don't have to spend the time to do all that stuff. You've got it, you've got it ready to go. Um, and in between appointments, um, I think it's important to really think, you know, if you're having symptoms or your a medicine feels funny or questions come up to keep a list of those and go with the questions to the doctor and ask those questions because it's your time and your money and your life. And so you have a right to ask those questions. Did you use anything special to track your symptoms? I just kept a calendar and um, I kept a log and I just would keep a list of things that would come up and um, it helped me see what foods were giving me problems it helped me see um, if a new medicine was giving me a problem. I think that's really important. Yeah, it turns into one big fog. Or it it can. does, and, one, and it, it can, and then you get to the doctor and you forget to tell them something that could be a real clue, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, like, for inst- like, for instance, for me, I, you know, I was super sensitive, so I was taking vitamin D, and it was making me really sick, and I couldn't figure out why. Mm. Well, it turns out that my vitamin D was in gelatin caps, and because of the herpes, I couldn't have gelatin. Mm. And um, I just switched to another vitamin D, and I was fine. So if I hadn't sort of sussed that out, I, I might have kept taking it and thinking, well, it's the lime, or it's this, or it's that. But really, it was just what the vitamin D capsule was in. Crazy. Um, it's so crazy. And that's something I advise is know what's in the medicine you're taking. Um, don't just, just you know, the doctor says, here, take this. I'm not saying, you know, to not take it. What I'm saying is look at the ingredients. I mean, I can't have soy. Some of the meds had soy and soy lecithin in them. Mm-hmm. So don't take it. Um and also in terms of medicines, um, I think it's important to have a list of the medicines that you're taking on hand um, in your wallet and the dosages and, and whatever allergies you have. Because, you know, I had an emergency room visit in the middle of all this, um, besides the first emergency room visit, and I'm on hydrocortisone. And... Um, it's important for them to know that I'm on that. So I really advise patients to write out everything that they're taking and keep it with them. Yeah. Help the system manage you, right? Well, right. I mean, and I, I always think, you know, you have to remember that the doctors and the nurses and everyone, they're human too. And they're just having a day 
you're just one person in many that they see. So we can't take it personally. Um, it's our job to make sure they know how to treat us. Yeah, it really is. That's the that's the state we're in right now. The the days of the family doctor are so far gone. That yeah, the, I mean, especially yeah. if it's a doctor who takes insurance who's seeing how many patients in a day. Right. It's it you know, and, and that I will tell you that was that was where my paradigm shift came. I was with my doctor, who I think is wonderful, and um, there was up to a certain point. I kept thinking, "There's going to be a magic pill he's going to give me, and I'm going to be fine." <laughs> right. Seriously, yep. I was like, just give me the pill and let me take it. I'm going to go on my way. Yep, that's, the, that's the underlying yep. paradigm of medicine. That and that actually right. that came from syphilis, that right. and penicillin. Well, and, and interesting that it's very similar it, to Lyme. Yeah, you know, but that that started that thinking, and we've thought that we don't even know we think that way, but we we all yeah. do, even those who know better. Mm-hmm. We just can't help it. Right. Anyway, right. and this was two you. years in. Yeah. No, no, this was two years into my process. Like, yeah. I've been through so much at this point, and I'm still thinking, just give me a pill, Magic give me an bullet. answer, Magic and let bullet. me get back to my life. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm in his office one day, and he just kind of shrugged at me. Mm. And I, I left that appointment, and I cried all the way home. Yeah. And that was, I, I kind of can say that that was the day where it was like the paradigm shift happened. I was like, okay. No one is going to fix this for me. No one can get inside of my body. Mm-hmm. The person who's in charge is me. And what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of when everything changed because I just started, I took control. I was like, okay, this is what I got to do. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of layers. It doesn't happen all at once. No, but it doesn't. I, I do feel, I do feel that these, small details of small things you can do for yourself every day and when interacting with your healthcare uh, practitioners can certainly give you a sense of some sort of control in an illness and a situation that is entirely out of our control. Yeah, here's here's a small thing. So one of the things that happens is when you're so incapacitated, you can't do anything. So you don't even get the normal kind of brain cookies, the dopamine uh, releases that happens with accomplishing anything you, because you can't accomplish anything, literally. Yeah. You can't even brush your own teeth. So mm-hmm. one, one of the things that I've heard from a, a woman who was really suffering with a severe concussion was she created a, a, a kind of a mental game with her sister. So the the task she was given for, was something like, you know, identify a bird outside of your window today and you, mm-hmm. and you get points for that. You know, and when mm-hmm. she was feeling a little bit better, she started playing games like Tetris. You know, so mm-hmm. even just the little success of moving that s- square or that funny shaped squiggle into the right hole gives your brain a little, aha, I did something. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so this point you're making about just having these, these little things, it is to, to gain some traction, it's the little things. You're not going to move the big things yet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's baby steps. It's, it's, be, yeah, it's, or, or even smaller, you know, baby mouse steps yeah. or something. You know, mm-hmm. like, like and, bring a photo, like that's such great advice. Bring a photo of your old self to your doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
It's brilliant. I mean, that's what that's what's hard. Another just one other aspect of this illness that's so difficult is we don't heal in a constant upward trajectory. <laughs> it's, it's we really don't. If uh, you want to chart it. You can't look at it that way. Right. You go forward, you go back, you go up, you go way down, you go back. It's maddening. And if and in a, in a goal-oriented society, or if you're that kind of a person mm-hmm. where, you know, I do this amount of work and I see this result, that's not how these illnesses feel. Um, and, and I was a very driven, goal-oriented person. It, it almost drove me crazy to accept that it wasn't going to be cause-effect. It was going to just be... You know, your body's going to heal on its own timetable, and you need to be okay with that. Yeah. As there's a wonderful uh, essay, audio essay I was listening to, a spiritual teacher, and he said, you know, so many descriptions of the spiritual journey – uh, the person arrives at the end and then they look back at their journey and, th- and the path they took magically straightens out behind them. So when they're describing how they got there, it's every step was progress, but they forget the right. switchbacks and the dead ends and the backwards right. and falling down and, and stuff like that. And, you know, that's one of the things I find helpful in talking to people who are actually in the struggle right now is they, they remind us. They remind us that, no, it wasn't an easy path. It wasn't a straight – not that it wasn't easy. That's the wrong word. But it wasn't a straight path. Mm-hmm. It's like you said, healing – and healing is – getting sick happens quickly. Healing happens slowly. Oh, healing is slow. So slowly. Too slowly. It's true. <laughs> that's a good point that you make. It's, it's easy to forget. Um, I will say that is yet another difficult thing with Lyme. When you, when you backslide, it's – it's in every way, and it, for me, when I backslide physically, um, it really makes me depressed. Um, almost, almost harder because I'm doing better now. Mm-hmm. So that when I do backslide physically, um, you know, you you start to get scared that you're 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 going to get stuck there, um, and it, it, it's it's a little like PTSD. You 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 kind of feel really freaked out when yeah. you when you backslide physically. Yeah. It's not like it is. It is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It it kind of can throw me right back into that mindset of my darkest days, and I, and that's where that's that's still I still I'm still challenged by that. Um, despite how far I've come, I'm still challenged by the depression that kind of I call my depression Debbie, and she she visits sometimes. Um, when I'm physically, especially when I'm tired, but when I'm physically feeling unwell, like, oh, Debbie has decided to come by and, um, like, so I can differentiate now, you know, it's not me. It's just the, the physical part of it, that's bringing that on. I love that. There's something (laughs) powerful. Again, that's kind of the, the, I'm going to steal somebody's word. The gamification of the disease is, is Mm -hmm. give the depression, give some of these symptoms names, you know, so it's right. not, it's not just me, 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 I, 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 it's, no, it is the disease. It's something outside of yourself that you can manage, you can fight against, you know, you, yeah. you don't have to fight against yourself. Now, Amy, we've been at this now for an hour mm-hmm. and you have been a trooper and incredibly generous with your time. And, uh, I know Thank people you. are just going to love this interview. It's been amazingly fantastic. So in wrapping up, will you give the the Pennsylvania uh, details, the webpage, and how they get in touch with your organization and get inspired oh, yeah, by you to. guys and learn from you guys? Absolutely. 
Um, so PA Lyme Resource Network, um, we are a statewide group. We network support groups across the state. Um, you can find us at www.palime.org. Um, I'd also like to say that we are going to have a patient conference um, in May of this year, 2016. Um, we don't have a date yet, but we're going to post that information on our Facebook page. So you can find PA Lyme Resource Network on our Facebook page, and we'll be posting the patient conference information there. Oh, cool. I want to promote that. So. Yeah, it's going to be a great conference. I, we're going to have great speakers. It's going to be totally patient-oriented, which I just love, and I think people are going to get so much good information out of it. Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Yeah, we'll really empower them. Super. All right. Oh, and, and I actually forgot my blog, too. <laughs> <laughs> my my line story horn. is there. My line story is there in greater detail. Um, it's Lime Advocate, which is a d v o k i t dot blogspot dot com. Okay, say that one more time. It's Lime Advocate, a d v o k i t, all one word. Lime Advocate dot blogspot dot com. All right, perfect. You're a powerhouse. I can't imagine you being sick and on your bed. <laughs> I'm trying to, to not be there anymore. <laughs> Anything else? Uh, Let me give you the last I don't know. I feel, <laughs> I feel like we covered a lot. But, um, yes, we did. I think um, something I, I was thinking about the other day that, that it sadly just occurred to me, but that it's so important in this process to give yourself unconditional love. Mm. Mm. You know, um, because, and, and, and like I said earlier, just do away with the doubt because it's a waste of your energy and you know what you're fighting. So use your energy to, heal physically, emotionally, spiritually, so you can get back to, you know, making your mark on the world. Yeah, that's brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was so nice talking with you. I can't wait to meet you in person. Okay. I hope, hopefully we will get to do that. All right. Likewise. Okay. Take care. Good Thank night, you. Amy. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Interview really resonated with me. I thought Amy had some really powerful points to make. And one of the things that I want to highlight is uh, her emphasis on creating a paradigm shift. Now, she was talking about it within in creating a difference in how she saw herself and how she saw herself being sick with Lyme disease. But I thought that her suggestions, uh, especially, for example, giving your, giving your doctor a picture of you, yourself when you were healthy, um, that really helps create a paradigm shift for doctors, for them to be able to see the healthy person that you once were and that of what you're trying to be. Yes, it is. You know, we don't, most of us don't have the luxury of having a family doctor anymore. So they don't recognize us from our childhood and growing up and what we were like when we were healthy. They don't see us in the community. They don't see us in our activities before we got Lyme disease. And so they just see us when we show up sick 
in their office and they see sick people all day long. And there's, they always have people who are sicker almost always than, than we are. And so you might not look that bad to them. So it's hard for them to have any context to understand just how far your health has far, fallen. So I think Amy's suggestions are very, very powerful. You know, the other thing that reminds me of is I have a patient who's a doctor and he talks about how we do a disservice that we really need a paradigm shift in speaking about Lyme disease with our doctors. Because from a medical profession point of view, Lyme disease is an infection from a very specific bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi. So that's one. But when we say Lyme, when we talk about talk about Lyme amongst ourselves, we mean the whole world of Borreliosis. So Lyme disease does not equal Borreliosis. Lyme disease is a subset of Borreliosis. And it would be more effective when we're speaking with doctors. I think when we speak among ourselves, we can say Lyme disease. That's kind of code word for Borreliosis. But when we're speaking to a, a doctor, we need to be technically accurate. So if we go in there saying Lyme disease and they say, no, it isn't, and then we start arguing with them, they think we're insane. But if you say Borreliosis, that kind of opens up their brain to think, okay, maybe it's not the Borrelia burgdorferi, maybe it's a different Borrelia, the Bor Borrelia miyamotai, for example, or one of the other dozens of, of Borrelia that have been identified. So I think that's a very subtle but important point. Okay, that took a little bit longer than I thought. That was a... <laughs> it, it, exactly. But it's an important point. But well, it's an important point. Yeah, it's... It, it's important to make. Yeah, it it really is. And we'll figure out a way to get that, that word out there. So if, if you can begin doing that with your friends and with your Lyme advocacy work, it would help a ton. Because really, doctors, you know, they're just, they think very specifically. They don't think like we do. They're dealing with technical information. And so the difference between Lyme and Borreliosis in their mind is huge. In ours, it's like, of course, it's the same thing. Okie doke, if you need more Lime Ninja in your life and interesting conversations like these, subscribe to us on your iPhone or your iPad. That way you won't miss out. All right. Also, please leave a review for us on iTunes. If you are listening on your phone, search for us on the podcast app. Type in Lime Ninja Radio. You should see a big green ninja button. Tap on that. It'll take you to another screen with all the episodes on it. Tap the reviews button in the middle of that. That Then look for the write a review link below and then tap on that and make sure to leave us five stars. Yes, it's a little bit convoluted to leave a review on iTunes, but if you go through the trouble of doing so, we'd really, really appreciate it. It's important. By leaving a review on iTunes, you help us move up the iTunes rank. That means more people are going to find this podcast and the great information that's here, guests like Amy Teal and our other Lyme experts. And last, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas can alphabetize M&Ms? <laughs> 
Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.